it shows how much we've been biologically, historically, as we evolved and how much more we can be if we remember it, if we rediscover it. We want to go out into space. That's good. You know, go explore. But don't forget how amazing we are. It's so easy to see the bad side of humans. That to remember we have all this other stuff that connects us to the biggest environment on the planet in a calmer, better way. It's just such an awesome thing. And to me, it's like to not bother to truly understand our own planet before we spend all these resources to go into space. I think it's criminal to start looking at Mars. Oh, Mars is, that's the thing. We're going to really, man, if we can get to Mars, that's going to be amazing. We still don't know what 70% of the species in the ocean and these things are dying now before we can understand them. I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's very good. Today we have a very interesting guest, the author of Deep, Free Diving, Renegade Science, and What the Ocean Tells Us About Ourselves. Thank you very much for joining us, James Nestor from the other side of the world. Thanks for having me. You've got the coolest voice, James. <laughs> Been working on perfect, that. Thanks, yeah. thanks for that compliment. <laughs> You have the, the best voice for talking about anything to do with breathing. It's just amazing. And You've got a face for radio too. Trust me on that. <laughs> well, see, that's the great thing. You're talking to a blind guy. There's no problem there. We're all sorted. <laughs> and it's fine to make blind jokes. I do. So if you feel the need, well, there's a great opportunity. Like one of the things I loved in deep, one of the first things that grabbed me as you started, you know, talking about going to the free diving competition in Greece was this idea that, you know, once you're below a certain depth, there's no more light and all your senses start caving in and disappearing. So your sense of touch disappears as blood goes into the core of your body and your hearing pretty much gets shut down. There's nothing to see because the water's black. And then, wow, from a sighted perspective, that would be a freak out. It certainly is. And, and watching just all the different frequencies of light start slipping away at different depths. So you enter into this monochromatic world, you know, uh, the world is all color at the surface. And then the deeper you go, the more divorced from that terrestrial world and all of the colors uh, it becomes. And it just really puts you in a different state of mind, different physical presence, everything. Well, that wonderful point you make that the ocean isn't blue. It's just what the light that goes the deepest or keeps going the longest or something. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. And the same goes for the sky. The sky is not filled with blue powder. Those are just the frequencies of light that we're seeing. So it just allows you to, once you start understanding that, uh, you understand why some water looks brown and tropical water looks blue because that water has very good visibility. And so those are the wavelengths that you're seeing, that, that blue light wavelength way down deep. So when you went to that original freediving competition in Greece, you know, to just report on it as a journalist, what could you really see sitting on the sailboat beside? You could see people going in and you could sort of see them go down for a few meters and then they basically just disappeared. Yeah. You, you know, um, I had never seen anyone freedive before, which was strange considering I grew up near the ocean, but on the West coast of California, there's just not a lot of diving. The water's very cloudy. So I was sent out on this assignment on a bit of a rush 
and did not do a bunch of research, came in fresh and was sitting on the bow of this boat and watched this guy take a breath of air and just completely disappear into the water. I mean, I, he just grew smaller and smaller until eventually he was totally gone. And then four or five minutes later, he comes back, takes a breath of air and gets out of the way for the next competitor. So it was just unlike anything I'd ever seen. The water, the visibility in Greece is fantastic. You know, it's 200 feet, 250, 300 feet. So it really looked like if you were to turn that upside down, it looked like this guy was just sailing off, like he was just flying off into this other world. And I thought, oh my God, what yeah. else is down there? What else don't we, don't we know about the ocean and our own potential? And it seems incredible too, because you know, I'm convinced now if I ever get the opportunity, I at least want to do like the basic training you did in Florida. You know, to get to the point of being safe to do this, and then I never want to do it again. But that idea of getting to the point where the buoyancy stops, hmm. that the water's not holding you up anymore. Actually, it's the opposite. There's so much water above you, you just kind of hang there. You know, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'm never going to be able to afford to go into space, you know, and experience zero Gs, but I can do it in water, go down about 30 feet, and there's there's no gravity or, or at least it feels as though there's no gravity. It's technically you're at neutral buoyancy. So a lot of scuba divers experience this, but when you're doing it just with your natural body, it's a very strange experience. And then, then if you go down a little deeper than that, you start getting very gently pulled towards the seafloor, wow. pulled deeper, just effortlessly you fall at the rate of like a feather you know, in the air. And it really feels like you're entering into this different kingdom, this, this different world where there are different rules and different things you need to pay attention to. And that I imagine, you know, would be incredibly seductive. The idea that you could just gradually keep going down and you're starting to get comfortable with the idea you're not going to drown. You've done it enough times. I wonder how many people haven't sort of, you know, lost or made a big mistake other than enjoying the sensation too much. Well, I think that's the thing about free diving, right? It can be very dangerous if you approach it recklessly. You have to be completely in control of and in tune with your body the whole time, in tune with your mind. It's this forced meditation. You know, you can't do it stressed out or thinking about work or emails or whatever. You have to submit to this greater force, which is the ocean, and to be very respectful of, of its power and be respectful of your own limits. And so the competitive freediving, you know, was, was magnificent to see these people going so deep, but it was also crazy because a lot of these people didn't make it and they came back to the surface of blood on their face. And, I, you know, it was like the most beautiful thing, the most horrific and terrifying thing at the same time. So I knew that there was an interesting story in that. Yeah, it really comes across in your book. At one point, you have someone come back up and they just look elated. And then the next person's covered in blood. And, you know, the face is swollen. And, you know, the eyes have got a thousand yard stare and not really focused on anything. And you're like, wow, it can either go very well or very, very badly. And, and that guy actually was, was technically dead for, I yeah. think, a minute until he was resuscitated. And I thought, this is the stupidest sport I've ever seen. To call it a sport, it's just insane. But at the same time, the, the people who, who did it with respect for themselves, their limits, and the ocean, 
just it was otherworldly. So I immediately glommed on to those people who approached it as a meditation, not as a competition. And it was from them that I really learned about. Yeah, the South African ladies that you described sort of sitting beside the pool with and then going to South Africa and training with, you know, where in the end you end up free driving, what what is it, bow sharks, Uh, cow sharks? Cow sharks. Yeah. Yeah. And she, she's much more comfortable. I, you know, I, I'm a surfer, so I've sharks not too bad. comfortable with sharks, sharks in the water, but as a free diver, it's this, this is another thing where I was talking about how the rules change, right? She, she loves sharks because sharks, their, their prey doesn't come up to them and look them in the eye and swim right next to them. Their prey is face the other way at the surface, right? And then they come up behind them and, and grab them. So there is this complete paradigm shift with these animals and they immediately know you're on a different level. If you're down there with them, cruising around at depth, looking them in the eye, swimming alongside of them, they just, they have as much fun with it as, as the freediver does. And it was that 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 was so enticing about freediving to be welcomed into this underwater world and to become really part of it not just an observer but but a part of that that life how has that affected going surfing for you because the irony is if you're on the surface on the board silhouette wise you do look a bit like a seal so there's a chance the shark wants to taste whether you are a seal but you know now that if you get 30 feet down and look at it in the face and swim along with it it's all going to be fine that's got to be a weird juxtaposition (laughs) to deal with when you paddle out? Well, if sharks really wanted to eat humans, they'd be eating, you know, thousands of us every year. There's what, six deaths from shark attacks every year, six or seven. How many people are in the water at any given day? How many millions of people are in the water at any given day? So those incidents in, in which people do get hit, they're, they're accidents. And, and I believe that because it's usually one, one hit and then the shark takes off because they can assess your caloric value within like fractions of a second. And we are way too skinny to, <laughs> that, to, for a shark ever to bother. They want a seal. They want fat. You know, these are the ketogenic animals they, they want good fat to stay fit. And, and so when, when you hear these stories, I mean, six people, that's tragic. Six people a year out of how many hundreds of millions are in the water. So um, I, you know, it, and it's usually people are getting picked off when, when the water is very murky or after a storm. So when, when sharks can, can see you clearly and they can see you looking at them, it, there is a shift that happens without a doubt. It's interesting here. We've had a couple of years of probably more deaths in Australia from sharks than we've had in the last 10. We've probably had more people dead in the last two than the last 10. Hmm. And we really, really need, you know, books like yours to be read to go people, you know, this is accidental. These things don't want to bite us. And there was amazing footage here in Australia last year of a couple of young guys just swimming off a jetty in Western Australia. And it turned out there was a tiger shark mm. basically just under the jetty wrapped in, you know, ropes and cables and, you know, pretty close to death. And they unwrapped it, grabbed it by the fins and paddled along and helped it get water through its gills. And once it was moving a bit more, it had some energy. It just moved away and quietly moved back out to sea. And then they got a heap of the footage on their GoPro. And I think Australians really need to see that. If you don't look like maybe lunch, you'll be fine. 
Yeah, I you know I can't guarantee no, in, any no, of but, that. But 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 as a as a rule of thumb, yeah, if you're up bobbing at the surface, you know you're much more going to be considered c- closer to prey than than yeah. if you're down with them with without a doubt. Which is why you see these videos of scuba divers just side by side with sharks stroking their heads. <laughs> so it it really changes things. It's interesting throughout the book when you're talking about the. Yeah, the difference of just, you know, jumping off the side of the boat, getting in the water. Once you're ready, you've done your breaths going down. So like when you go to the base on the bottom of the ocean, Aquarius, and you're talking to the boat captain, he makes the point, oh yeah, I used to put all the scuba gear on to do the delivery of supplies to downstairs. But it's a lot easier to just jump off the side of the boat and do it in one breath. And you're looking at him like, huh? (laughs) Well, this is something it's, you know, Greek uh, uh, sponge divers, they were, they've been doing this for 3,000 years. I think there's archaeological evidence that dates back to the tribes around the Baltic Sea that's 10,000 years old, um, where they're, they're picking up red coral that, that grows below 100 feet. So humans have been doing this for so long, before there was scuba, before there were submarines, we were diving deep and we're, we're built, our bodies are built to dive deep just like a seal is or a dolphin is or a whale is. And it's just something that I think that we're, we're so divorced from that connection with the ocean that we used to have when, when we had to, right? Now we don't have to do, yeah. we can sit on a couch and, you know, eat TV dinners all, all day. Yeah. Or order a burrito, which is what, what I just did, you know? So it's really interesting. Like I think my first exposure to sort of free diving was having the TV on the background and it was an Australian current affairs program and they were in the Philippines and it was a a community that literally live on boats have done for centuries. And someone just says, I'm I'm going out to get dinner, just steps off the boat and drops. (laughs) Absolutely. Three or four minutes later. And that was my exposure. And I went, wow. And of course, like you do when you just wander around the house doing stuff and the TV's on in the background, you go around and you then completely forget to look it up. But you know, when you start talking about the master switch, this idea that we just change gear because it's so deeply in our biology to be able to dive, that's that sort of incredible how many things we've got that are adapted for this. Yeah, the mammalian dive switch is, is called that mammalian dive reflex because almost all mammals have this, like chickens don't have it, some other mammals don't have it, but but most of them do. And And if anyone doubts me, uh, you can go to your kitchen sink right now or bathroom sink and splash cool water on your face and your heart rate's going to dive down about 20%, 25%, and, and you're going to feel a shift in your circulation. So just that, just cool water on our face will have this profound physiological reaction. Just imagine what happens when you go down 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, all of those reactions double and triple and quadruple until finally you're at 200 feet and you, you know, you hardly resemble, resemble your terrestrial self. You've, you've become this, this water animal and it's the exact same reflexes that seals use to dive down 2000 feet per an hour at a time or sperm whales use to dive down for 90 minutes to depths of 7,000, 8,000 feet. So we have them too. These are hardwired in our genes. It's just, again, we never need to use them. So many people never think of them or or, or think that we could possibly do these things that we've been naturally evolved to do. 
Yeah, one of my friends, when the baby was born, they did the thing of starting the you know, the sort of lessons in water as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. And it was incredible. The little one literally went in the water. The minute it face under the water, it just looked all smiley and happy and started doing breaststroke. <laughs> that's that's exactly right. No I've thinking seen, just did it. It was amazing. I've seen videos of this and mm-hmm. eyes open, yeah. underwater, breaststroking and and an infant will choose to stay down there 30 seconds 45 seconds and perfectly fine the the kid is not drowning this is a part of of how we came to be Mm -hmm. and and it's a part that we become increasingly divorced from and once we learn to walk we start to lose all those abilities those those uh that group, the Mokin and the Baju in the Philippines. So they spent six months at sea and their infants start off in the water, mm. right? And, and they actually have developed a different kind of ability to see underwater. Their eyes have changed so they can see. the pressure difference. Yes, but they're, they're so used to it. And I went out there in, in Northern Thailand to hang out with a Mokin and, and try to learn their ways. And let me tell you, it's not only do they free dive, they go down to about 100, 150 feet and walk around with a spear yeah. in their hands. <laughs> and that's how just, they hunt. <laughs> it's just a bigger garden. It's an incredible concept. And, and this is, I think, the thing. I've got some friends who are medical anthropologists and you know, we were sitting chatting one day and they're making the point that there is so much evidence that humans, as we know, 200,000 years came out of the bottom of South Africa. And that probably one of the things that kicked off the final huge dose of brain development and neurological development was a seafood diet because of the mm-hmm. kinds of protein in it. And you're like, it's- well, what a lovely link in to the stuff you're writing about. This is what made modern humans human having this history and then the benefits at a certain point of evolution that finally you know, projected us into what we are today. Yeah, and, and we know that from, from cooking, the, the first people who started cooking, you know, I think the earliest archaeological, anthropological evidence is from 800,000 years ago, released a huge amount of calories mm-hmm. in food and, and allowed us to conserve more energy to build a larger brain. And then if you, you know, if you don't have to run after the animal, if you can just go in the water and grab it and get all that protein and get all of those calories, even better. Yeah, particularly if the predators in that environment don't look at you as prey. It's actually safer than being on the land where the lion or the leopard goes, hi. For sure. I mean, some of those hunts, you know, are supposed to go on for days. You're hunting this animal for days. Yeah, very inefficient. Well, Why the heck would you do that if you had a choice? Absolutely. Going down and grabbing an abalone or, or you know, a fish that's right at your feet, that's, that's a much more efficient way of getting some, some really good calories. What is the sensation like of everything getting squished? So the closest thing I think I've felt to that kind of pressure is probably doing 200 kilometers an hour on a motorcycle, just the G forces. <laughs> that would be my version. And you know, that was what I was thinking about when you were describing scuba versus free diving. I don't like fast cars in my opinion. They're boring and pointless. I like mm-hmm. fast motorbikes because you're taking the blast and you know, if it goes horribly wrong, you're going down the road, which is why to switch on. It's a totally different environment. Sure. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, the first time I experienced that, uh, just considering that my introduction 
to free diving was through competitors and I saw a bunch of nasty stuff. So I had that stuck in my brain. So when I first started feeling that pressure and you can feel it at 10 feet, you know, you can feel it at 15 feet, 20 feet. It's really starts building. Um, it, it frightened me uh, because you, you're feeling just the force of water, the force of the ocean coming down on you. And if you're not prepared for that, if your body's not acclimated to it, it can really hurt you, which is one of the reasons why you have to go into this so slowly and so gently and not as some turbo aggressive dude who's just, I'm going to go down 100 feet today. I don't care. I'm going to push it. That is the stupidest thing you can do. So especially in the water, and, and you'll learn that lesson very quick. I think the the ocean's very great at self-regulating, you know, the population. So, um, uh, you know, it just feels like you're surrounded by plastic wrap when you're down 20, 30 feet. And that starts to increase, but then the more used to it you get, you kind of crave the, the pressure and you crave just what a different environment it is and how quiet it is and how in tune with your body you are and how you can hear every single heartbeat. You're just locked in and it's, uh, it's just a profound state of meditation. At least that's, that's what I've found it to be, just this wonderful underwater meditation. And that's a wonderful thing that comes across in the book, the difference between the competitive people and the people who come to love being in the ocean and as a consequence, love the ocean in a whole new way. It's not just sport yeah. anymore. It's actually being there as a part of it and literally just letting it be and enjoying what it is. And I think that that's the key. It's we don't always have to amplify and look for the next level, it's especially in, we do enough of that in the terrestrial world. And that, that's how I feel about surfing a lot too. It's like, God, there's so many competitions going on in the, on land. When, when I'm in the water, I just want to be able to commune and connect with it. And free diving is a wonderful way of getting rid of all of those annoyances and disturbances of land because you just can't have them down there. There's no one down there. You know, you can dive with friends, but you're still very much alone in your own vessel, just focused on your own body and everything around you. And I sorely miss it. I mean, I really, the diving up in San Francisco here is awful. So the only time I really get to do it is when I travel and haven't been doing too much of that lately. Okay, so you literally have to wait until you're going to be able to travel again to go somewhere where it's, it's the right kind of water to be able to enjoy it. Yeah, and cold water and warm water, that's all great. Uh, it doesn't matter, but it needs to be clear. We, we were diving up here, and the visibility, I think, was about four feet. We're diving around, and, you know, it's a little, you can dive down 10 feet, and you can't see the, the surface. You can't see anything else. It's like you're in this big, dirty ball. So that's fun for maybe about 10 minutes, but then, then you're like, I, I can't wait to go on a trip somewhere Water. Yeah, it'd be fine for me just to learn how, but when the joy is actually seeing everything that's going on down there, it would kind of take the fun out, which is sure. a, a, a lovely transition into the fact that in the book is a wonderful chapter on echolocation of you going to hang out with you know, a blind guy who is a very, very good echolocator and making the point that this is in everyone's head and the only question is whether to bring it out. I've talked about it a little bit before on Blind Insights, how I use it a bit. But I think your description 
of watching him walk across the car park and into the restaurant mm. and you're echolocating to find his water glass. I'm like, wow, this dude's a machine. I use it a bit, but without any formal training and realizing I do it without knowing I'd been doing it. Yeah. And it's what really fascinated me was that, so we have these mammalian dive reflexes, this master switch that switches on, but we also have all these other abilities that other marine mammals have. So you talk about dolphins and whales and whales, for instance, can dive down to 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 feet and deeper. And it's pitch black down there. So they spend most of their lives in total blackness. And the way that they see, the way that they can stay in touch with one another and, and hunt prey is through echolocation. But it, it turns out humans can, can echolocate too, just like bats can echolocate. And um, so I, I found this blind guy, uh, Brian Bushway, and he had developed the sense of echolocation totally naturally. Um, he, he lost his sight when he was 15, I believe. And, and then about three months later, he was, he was walking through school and started seeing these images of columns around him. And he realized that he was using, instead of using the frequencies of light to see, he was using the frequencies of sound to see. When they put other blind echolocators in an MRI and scanned their brains while they were echo, echolocating, the visual cortex of the brain lit up. So um, I was able to hang out with him. He showed me some basics of echolocation. This was years ago. I'm still in touch with him and, and his partner, Daniel Kish. And these guys are just such complete badasses. They, they use echolocation to bike around the city streets of Los Angeles. They camp alone. I mean, they travel. They're just, they're out there in the world making it happen using those frequencies of sound to lead their way. Yeah, Daniel's been here in Australia and, you know, ran a few seminars in Sydney. And at the time I was teaching and couldn't get away and go to Sydney for the seminars. And I'll forever be annoyed that I'm a responsible person and turned up to work. <laughs> yeah, work will do that to you. It's a bastard. But this is the thing. And it's a really interesting, your description reading it is what I found when I first sort of, I think the ABC, sort of our national broadcaster here, did an interview with Daniel when he was here. And I realized, hang on, I'm doing this some of the time without really mm. thinking about it. And when I thought about it more, a very interesting thing was I went, okay, do I need to listen more to do this or how do I need to represent it in my brain? And I actually found that what I needed to do was stop listening as we normally listen to hear things and listen to instead build a picture and imagine the picture being formed around me out of what I was hearing. And I reckon that's why it taps in to the sort of optical bit of the brain because you need to think about what you're processing in a different way. I think that's what some people really struggle to learn and where someone like you know, Daniel is so important, helping people to move how they think about it so they can get the best outcome. Yeah, and you know, you're using uh, spatial reasoning between your two ears to just form this field around you. And he's gotten so good at it, he can tell the difference between you know, a Rubik's Cube and a tennis ball across a table. I mean, this guy is crazy. incredible. And, and I had been talking to him, so we stayed in touch. And that, the most wonderful part of my job is I get to meet people like this. And then I stay in touch you know, and, and just learn about what they're working on. They learn about what I'm working on. And I had this idea that I had been doing some, some VR work 
and using this little machine that had these two phony ears on it to capture sound that sounds more lifelike. Oh, binaural audio. Yeah, yeah. by binaural yeah. holographic. And I thought, well, what if we took a scan of someone's ears and then 3D printed enormous, like four foot tall ears, right? And we're able to collect so much more of that data of those frequencies coming in, but also had it built, the ears would be built within the scope and geometry of their head. So this was something we were just starting to do. Who knows, maybe it would flop or maybe this would be a wonderful way of allowing non-sided people to experience other environments and, and to teach them echolocation, human echolocation from afar. And then the pandemic hit and I just talked to Daniel a couple, couple weeks ago. We're like, ah, we were so close. But uh, whenever things start clearing up, we're going to try to do that and see what happens. My feeling is it will do really well because the other day a friend of mine was watching a virtual wildlife safari from South Africa mm -hmm. in real time. So you're having the description, seeing what the camera was seeing, being able to type chat questions in to you know, ask the ranger, you know, what does this thing do? What does this do? How does this animal do things? So the ability to go, well, you can't physically go there at the moment, but you know, you could have access in another way. It might actually be a time to not just get, blind people really interested, but to get everyone to perceive the world differently. And that's what we were thinking. You know, I was, as a tool for him, I said, this could be so much more beneficial than for him showing up in person and teaching these workshops if he's yeah. really able to teach this remotely. But then we were, we were thinking, oh, how wonderful would it be to go to these exotic locations and create these Soundscapes. These, yeah, soundscapes or, or even films, you know, films yeah. without pictures where you could really, it would be a super HD quality of, of sound and in which there would be uh, a breadth of space between elements. So maybe, just maybe, it would be realistic enough or high quality enough for people to imagine what was happening in, in that environment. It sounds like an amazing thing to work on, which also then provides a fantastic leap into the later part of the book where you're going out and diving with sperm whales that have that powerful an ability to pulse sound at you that you literally feel it when it hits you. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's loud enough to deafen you and, and to, and to, explode a human head. So well, like you said, they call it the shotgun when they go after the big squids. That's, yeah. that's right. They're stunning, you know, 60 foot long giant squid. So it's got to be pretty powerful. But when you're in the water with these animals, they have such utter control of this power that they could, they could kill you in 20 different ways. They could chomp you with their eight inch long teeth. They could smack you with their fluke. They could smother you. They could click you to death. I mean, I could, I could go down, you know, another, another list here, but they choose not to. And that is to me is the real magic of free diving. If you can get good enough to be able to approach these animals calmly and just dive down and they see you taking a breath of air and then you dive down and, they take a breath of air and then they dive down and then you go back to the water and then they start clicking. And we know that those clicks are encoded with some sort of language, some sort of communication. We don't know what it is yet, but I'm telling you, it was, 
I, I, every time I think of that experience, I get the chills and all yeah. I want to do is go have do, it again. Go do it again. And of course, my thought was, golly, everything you, know, you were able to find suggests that they're using like fast burst language. You know, we, that's where we it's leaning towards. We, we don't know for sure. We know that there's, there's these extremely complex broadband clicks. And we mm. know that if you look at these clicks um, in a spectrogram and you look at the quality of data in there, they can replicate clicks down to the millisecond. Mm. So this is not a dog barking. This is encoded information. Could be like a fax machine, which mm. is may, maybe one of the reasons they sound like fax machines or an old dial-up router. Um, mm. I'm old enough to know what that is. Just mm. saying, yeah. So now they're looking at um, their clicks with, with machine learning and they're, they're using these algorithms that were used to help translate other languages to look at patterns in these clicks. And I'm working with David. I'm not working. He's, he's the scientist here. I'm just sitting in awe of what he's, he's doing and trying to get the word out. That's my job with this. But uh, he is working with a number of the top machine learning scientists, AI scientists, cryptographers, you, you name it, at, at Harvard and MIT and top institutions. And just going into this research right now. And I'm so excited to see what we're going to find. We're going to find something. I, no one knows quite what. And I think this is the critical thing with it, you know, with the Japanese talking about resuming more whaling, yeah. other countries talking about resuming. We need another breakthrough like those initial films in the 1980s that makes the average person who goes, blah, 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 I'm not in the ocean, I don't really care, stop dead and go, oh, it's a creature that is so thoughtful and interesting and interested. How could we let people do awful things to it? It's got a brain six times the size yeah. of ours. It's more evolved in so many ways than our brains are. And for people have a hard time thinking this, they're like, well, why aren't they running the world? You know, these are animals in, in the water. They've been running the world just fine, fine for 50 million years. They've been perfect ambassadors of the ocean, keeping everything in balance. So the idea that the one species that can pollute an environment is more powerful than another. I mean, an analogy I've used before is cancer's not too smart, but it's doing a pretty good job of taking us all out right yeah. now. So... Yeah, and that must because yeah, as I was sort of listening, you know, I had the the Kindle version of your book, and yeah, just got my phone reading it to me, and I'm going, oh wow, okay, I'm listening to a synthetic voice, you know, made up of all sorts of ones and zeros, and it could be that maybe a sperm whale, in a sense, is sending information to another sperm whale, almost the same way. Isn't that ironic? The technology that's making this work for me. Something similar, maybe how a sperm whale is sending a message to a friend so over here and behind that ridge is 10 skid. You go that way, I'll go this way. We'll get them. That's just awesome. That's a wonderful thought and something I never, never, uh, that never occurred to me. And, and to think that, I mean, here's an animal, like animals don't grow big brains by accident. Unnecessarily. People, yes. And pe people say, they're like, well, it has a big brain because it has a big body. No. You can look at a whale shark. It's got a brain of the size of a tennis ball, right? And it can move its body just fine. The sperm whale brain is so developed and it's developed for a reason. And hopefully soon we'll be able to understand their communication a little better and 
you know, maybe perhaps one day be able to, to share thoughts. Who knows? I think that's what's so interesting about this book is it's such an amazing cross point between all these different areas of study. And you were talking earlier about echolocation and, and, and bats, like what, what you can bring to the philosophy of mind table would absolutely disrupt that research what you would bring to kind of sonic arts and the study of sounds, I guess, would absolutely disrupt that research. What you're doing, I guess, in the neurology space with, I guess, forms of synesthesia is, I guess, really at the forefront. And, and then obviously the, the more anthropological stuff, there are, there are all these kind of different areas that you're kind of drawing from. There is a sort of reasonably clear lineage to this with your previous book, Get High Now Without Drugs, with <laughs> where you can see kind of breathing as, as one of those examples of uh, uh, <laughs> um, bringing yourself into different kinds of mental states. Was, was this something that you came across because you know, you're a surfer and you were in, inherently kind of interested in the ocean? Or was there something really intriguing about the psychological impacts of of water and, and, and breathing that you came across previously that then just made you double down, I guess. First of all, I haven't heard the title Get High Now Without Drugs in, in 10 years. So good job digging that <laughs> gem up. I will say I have to defend that book a little bit. That was never the intended title. So how that came about, and I'll be very quick here, don't worry, is my uncle was this fabulous playboy in Hollywood and he passed away and he had this amazing house on the hill near the Hollywood sign and I found all of this crazy meditation breathwork notes because he was a full-on hippie and that's what I turned into that book with with a scientific slant I said here's what really happens when you breathe this way and and then of course the publisher gave it that title I said I'm never gonna freaking live this down and, <laughs> Here it is, 10 years later. Still, the book, I will support the content of the book for sure. But that title has just been haunting me. So uh, anyway, uh, to answer now, to really answer your question, um, when you set off, as, so I'm a, I'm a journalist and I set off into these worlds that I don't know about and I try to learn as much as I possibly can and be objective about it. I have no slant of free diving is cool or if it's stupid or, or whatever. I just want to go in there and report the, the truth, the measured truth of these worlds. So I had no idea that when I was researching deep, it was going to take me into blind echolocation or magnetoreception or sperm whale communication or any of this. But I happened to luck out and meet the right people at the right time and follow down those lanes. And when I was finished with that book, I just said, this is one of the weirdest books I've ever come across. But it's one of the best <laughs> books because it goes everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, I, I drove myself crazy because I was just trying to find the, the areas, you know, 95% of that book never made it into the final cut. But those areas that you're talking about, you know, the book's been out for a while, but I, just talking about these things again, echolocation, magnetoreception, the, the uh, mammalian dive reflex, all of, I get so excited because I still don't see a lot of research happening in these areas. And to me, understanding these things and our potential can fundamentally change the way we view ourselves and our abilities and each other on this planet. 
So just to have this conversation and revisit this stuff, it gets me really excited. So I, you know, th there's no rhyme or reason to the madness here. I just went in, I went as hard as I could, looked at as much stuff as I could and picked out the stuff I thought was most interesting. And, and very interesting it is. Uh, so thank you for doing that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the thing I'd like to add to that is it shows how much we've been biologically, historically, as we evolved and how much more we can be if we remember it, if we rediscover it. We don't, you know, we want to go out into space. That's good. You know, go explore. But don't forget how amazing we are. It's so easy to see the bad side of humans to remember we have all this other stuff that connects us to the biggest environment on the planet in a calmer, better way. It's just such an awesome thing. And to me, it's like to not bother to truly understand our own planet before we spend all these resources to go into space. I think it's criminal to start looking at Mars. Oh, Mars is, that's the thing. We're going to really, man, if we can get to Mars, that's going to be amazing. We still don't know what 70% of the species in the ocean and these things are dying now before we can understand them. So, yeah. you know, you, you've got SETI, uh, the S-E-T-I, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, looking for signs of life in the, in the universe to one day communicate with it. Well, why not look at the animals here on our planet <laughs> that are right here that we know they're communicating. They've been reaching out to us. You free dive with them. They start talking to you. They start communicating to you. It seems to make a lot more sense and would do us a lot more good to have a better appreciation of, of this planet here, which is so amazing and vast, and we, we just hardly understand it. Yeah, we've kind of got our values wrong when marine biologists have to work in um, pet shops, you know? So. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the reality, you know. It's just there's no there's no money in in doing this stuff, so a lot of it doesn't happen. But I certainly hope that there is going to be start to be a shift in our appreciation of what we've got here, because we don't want to mess it up, you know. And it's it's we've got a lot to learn from it as as far as our longevity here and and how we're going to be living in the future. That sounds like the perfect place to say thank you very much, James, for a thoroughly entertaining conversation about a fantastic book thanks very much for having me hello listeners if you're enjoying our podcast please subscribe and like our facebook page search for blind insights with david olney also don't forget that we have merchandise thank you to the oscast network peace out